with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11. Last week we learned that a spiritual battle took place for 21 days as God's angelic messenger was trying to reach Daniel. This morning we're going to discover why as we begin to unfold the message that he brought. Now, Daniel was given a general description of that message in chapter 10 and verse 14. He was told that it was a description of what would happen to the people of Israel in the future. And that message can be divided into two parts in chapter 11. In verses 2 to 35, Daniel is shown what will happen to the Jewish people for the next 475 years from the day he received it in 536 B.C. down to about 163 B.C. And then in verses 36 and following, Daniel is shown what will happen to Israel in the time of the end. That is the tribulation period still future from today. This morning, we're going to try to cover the first section, verses 2 to 35. Now, this is probably the most detailed prophecy that's found anywhere in Scripture. John Walvoord counted 135 prophetic statements in these verses, all of which have been precisely fulfilled. In fact, it's this 11th chapter of Daniel that prompted the heathen philosopher Porphyry in the 3rd century A.D. to attack the book of Daniel as a forgery. He studied this chapter and concluded that the statements made here correspond so closely with the events of history that there's no way it could have been written beforehand. And so his conclusion was it was written by a forger, by an imposter in the second century B.C. And modern critics today still hold to that theory. And they still use the same logic, which is, I don't believe it could happen, therefore... I don't believe it did happen, which essentially places themselves and their understanding above God. I heard about a professor at a liberal theological seminary who was teaching on the book of Daniel. At the beginning of his lecture, he said, now I want you to understand that Daniel was written during the Maccabean period in the second century B.C., not by the historic Daniel who lived in the sixth century B.C., the facts written here, as all history is, were written after the events took place. One young man raised his hand and asked, uh, How can that be, sir, when Jesus said in Matthew 24, 16, that it was written by Daniel? And after pausing for a moment, he looked the young man in the eye and he said, Young man, I know more about the book of Daniel than Jesus did. Now, it may not always be stated that boldly, but that is certainly the implication whenever anyone says that Daniel wrote these things after the fact. And unfortunately, many students in that class and hundreds like it have learned that lesson well. And they are preaching in our churches today. And so this message, which was fought about in heaven before it got here, is still being fought about on earth today and will be until the day when Jesus comes back. Now, if you were here last week, you remember the setting. Daniel assumed that after the 70 years of captivity, God would restore the people of Israel to their former state of glory. But instead, two years after the captivity is officially over, only a fraction of the people have gone back to the land. And those who have have started the temple, and then they've gotten frustrated and they have quit the work. So Daniel is heartbroken. He is praying and fasting and mourning. He is crying out to God saying, what's going on? Just like that baby. 
And the answer comes via an angel who tells Daniel what the future holds for Israel. And the answer is essentially this. Daniel, the next time Israel experiences glory, will be in the kingdom. And up until that time, Israel is going to suffer at the hands of the Gentiles. Jesus reiterated that same truth in Luke 21, 24. He said, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. The times of the Gentiles began when Nebuchadnezzar took the Jews captive into Babylon. Didn't end after the 70 years. In fact, it hasn't ended yet, 2,500 years later. And they will continue to be trampled under the feet of the Gentiles until Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation and sets up his kingdom. And Daniel is going to get that lesson spelled out to him in more detail than he ever imagined in this chapter. Look at verse 2. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Now, in his opening statement, this angel describes for Daniel the political landscape in Persia for the next 70 years. Cyrus is the present king. He says three are going to arise after him, and then a fourth who will be wealthy, powerful, and will attack Greece. That's like Billy Graham calling a news conference and saying, the fourth president from now is going to declare war on Australia. What happened in this case? Seven years after this angel is speaking to Daniel, Cyrus's son, Cambyses, replaced him on the throne, king number one. He was followed seven years later by the fellow named Smyrtus. He looked so much like Cambyses that he wormed his way into the royal family and took the throne as an imposter. In fact, history refers to him as pseudo-Smyrtus because of his deception. He reigned only one year, but he was king number two. Following him was Darius Histopus, who reigned for 35 years, king number three. And then the king who followed him, the fourth king, was Xerxes I. He's also referred to as Ahasuerus. He's the king referred to in the book of Esther. History tells us he had fabulous wealth, he used that wealth to gather one of the largest armies in the ancient world, hundreds of thousands of soldiers. And he was so confident in his great army that he gathered them together and he moved west in 480 B.C. against Greece. You say, well, maybe that was just a lucky guess. I mean, maybe they fought with Greece all the time. Well, if you look at history, you'll find that the previous mentioned kings, none of whom attacked Greece. And if you'll look after Ahasuerus for 150 years, none of the kings after him had anything to do with Greece. So this angel nailed it. Fourth king would attack Greece. And Greece didn't forget about that easily because 150 years later, they retaliated. And that's what we read about in verse 3. And a mighty king will arise and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. Now that's a reference to Alexander the Great. He, he seized the entire Persian Empire. He was probably the most remarkable military leader ever. By the age of 33, he had conquered 
the known world. And the angel says at the end of verse 3, he will do as he pleases. That is, he would be an absolute monarch. You say, well, what does this have to do with Israel? Well, Israel was taken over at this point in time by Alexander the Great. Notice verse 4. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken. Alexander died at the age of 33. And what happened next? Look what it says. His kingdom will be broken up and parceled out. He died at 33. His kingdom was divided. I have to remember that this was written 200 years before Alexander was even born. And the angel goes on to give three specific details about the way that that kingdom would be divided. Look at the rest of verse 4. He says, It will be divided toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority which he wielded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. Three points. Number one, it won't go to his descendants. Alexander had a half-brother who was mentally retarded, he had an illegitimate son, and he had a son who was born after he died. All three were murdered. The kingdom, as usually happened, did not go to his descendants. Second thing the angel says is it will be divided to the four corners of the earth. A struggle ensued over Alexander's kingdom by various generals of his, and it eventually fell to four of those generals. Cassander took Macedonia and Greece to the west. Lysimachus took Trace and Asia Minor to the north. Seleucus took Syria and vast regions to the east. And Ptolemy took Egypt to the south. It was distributed to the four winds of the heaven. And then thirdly, he's, he's told that it will not be to the extent that it was when Alexander ruled. And no one of these kings enjoyed the authority that Alexander did. In fact, if you take all four of these kings and put them together... Their empire didn't match the empire of Alexander. And then as we come to verse 5, the prophecy focuses on two of those kings. Verse 5 says, Then the king of the south will grow strong. Now the king of the south is a reference to Egypt. We know that because he tells us specifically when we come to verse 8. He's called the king of the south because Egypt is south of Israel, and Israel is always the focal point of prophecy. Now, the first king of the south mentioned here is Ptolemy I. And what happened was that he established himself in Egypt. Meanwhile, a fellow by the name of Antigonus had control of Babylon. Seleucus I fled from Babylon and came down to Egypt and joined up with Ptolemy. Together, they defeated Antiochus of Babylon and Seleucus took control of Syria and everything east to India. And that's what verse 5 is describing. It says, Then the king of the south will grow strong along with one of his princes, that's Seleucus I, who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His domain will be, great, be a great dominion indeed. That's Seleucus who took control of Syria and east of there and actually had a greater dominion than Ptolemy did in Egypt. You say, well, why is he telling us all this? Well, he's setting the stage for the verses that follow. Because through the years, the Ptolemy dynasty and the Seleucid dynasty fought with each other. The king of the south, Egypt, and the king of the north, Syria, had battles that went back and forth for about 150 years. Guess who was in the middle? Israel. 
They were the battleground for these ongoing conflicts. And so in verses 5 to 20, we're going to have a description of that about 150-year battle that went back and forth. And in these verses, you're going to find those phrases, king of the north, king of the south. Those phrases don't speak about an individual king. They speak about whichever king was ruling over Egypt at the time. King of the north refers to whichever king was ruling over Syria at the time. Notice verse 6. And after some years, specifically 54 years, they will form an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. That happened in 252 B.C. The king of the south, who at that time was Ptolemy II, Philadelphus proposed an alliance with the king of the north, Syria, who was Antiochus II. And in that culture, the best way to establish a peace pact was to intermarry. And so Ptolemy offered his daughter Bernice to Antiochus. The only problem was that Antiochus was already married to a lady by the name of Laodice. So he divorced Laodice and married Bernice. What happened? Look at the end of verse 6. But she will not retain her position of power, that's Bernice, nor will he remain his power, that's Antiochus, but she will be given up, Bernice, along with those who brought her, that's her attendants, and one who sired her, that's her father, as well as he who supported her in those times, that's Antiochus. What happened? Well, history tells us that, that Laodice didn't like the arrangement one bit. So she murdered Bernice and all her attendants. About that same time, Ptolemy down in Egypt, her father, died. So the pact was off anyway. So Antiochus II goes back to Laodice and says, sorry, sweetheart, it won't happen again. And she took him back. But apparently she had a problem with forgiveness because shortly after they were remarried, she poisoned him. And then she murdered the infant daughter that he had had with Bernice. And so, as verse 6 says, nobody involved remained. Verse 7. But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place. Literally, that says, out of the branch of her roots. Whose roots? Well, if you look back at verse 6, the pronouns are all about her and she, referring to the daughter of the king of the south, Bernice. So out of her branch, one will arise, which is a reference to her brother named Ptolemy III who came to the throne of Egypt in 246 B.C. It goes on to say, He will arise in his place and he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north and he will deal with them and display great strength. 246 B.C., he succeeded in prevailing militarily over the king of Syria who at that time was Seleucus Callinicus. And as indicated in verse 8, it says, And also their gods and their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold he will take into captivity to Egypt. He comes up against the king of the north, defeats him, takes with him idols and valuables back to Egypt. And that's where he earned his name. He was referred to as Ptolemy Urgetes, which means Ptolemy, our benefactor. And then at the end of verse 8, we're told, And he on his part will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. He defeated him in battle and then he left him alone, which was probably a mistake because verse 9 says, then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south but will return to his own land. He left the king of the north alone but the king of the north didn't leave him alone. The king of the north, Seleucus Callinicus, 
uh, mounted a return attack about 240 BC. It was not successful, however, and he returned to Syria. Which brings us to verse 10. Are you hanging with me on this? All right. And his sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces. His sons, that's the sons of Seleucus Callinicus. He had two sons. The first was Seleucus III. He reigned for three years until he died in battle in Asia Minor. He was replaced on the throne by his younger brother, Antiochus III, who referred to himself as Antiochus the Great. He took the throne at the age of 18. And what's interesting is here, it says they both accumulated a large army. History tells us that army was about 75,000 soldiers. But if you notice verse 10, it says his sons will mobilize that army and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through and that he may again wage, up, wage war up to his fortress. Both sons accumulated the army. Only one of them, Antiochus the Great, brought that army as a flood through Israel on his way to Egypt. Verse 11, And the king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the latter will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. 217 B.C. King of Syria, Antiochus the Great, comes down against Egypt. Egypt, under their leader at that time, Ptolemy Philopater, who had 73,000 soldiers, 5,000 cavalry, and 73 elephants. Um, I guess they use those as battering rams. He brought his army out, and, and uh, they had a battle on the border of Palestine near Raphia, and as a result of that battle, uh, Egypt won a complete victory. And Jerome writes about this battle in the third century and says Antiochus lost his entire army and was almost captured as he fled into the desert. Verse 12, when the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up and he will cause tens of thousands to fall, yet he will not prevail. That's a reference to the king of the south. He had an opportunity to really annihilate Syria, but when the king of Syria fled, he didn't chase him. He just quit at that point, and therefore he did not fully prevail, which again was probably a mistake because 13 says, for the king of the north will again raise a greater multitude than the former, and after an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment. Antiochus the Great turned his attention to conquests in the east, where he was successful. As a result of that, he, he gained wealth, which allowed him to strengthen his army, and 13 years later, in 201 BC, he came back to get revenge on Egypt. Verse 14, now in those times many will rise up against the king of the south. That's a reference to many who had animosity against Egypt. One of those was Philip V of Macedonia who joined in this attack. Also it goes on in verse 14 to say the violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision but they will fall down. Now speaking to Daniel he says violent ones among your people which tells us that there were those out of Israel who sort of acted as mercenary soldiers. And they joined in with this attack. Their thinking was, as it says here, that they would fulfill the vision. That is, they would somehow, by joining with him, they would be able to bring in the kingdom to Israel. But it says they fell down. They didn't accomplish that. Verse 15, Then the king of the north will come, cast up a siege mound, and capture a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. 
The Egyptian troops didn't wait for Syria to get to Egypt. Instead, they came up through Israel. And in the city of Panias, just north of the Sea of Galilee, they were defeated. They retreated to the city of Sidon, and there Antiochus brought his troops and uh, made a siege against the city. And in 198 B.C., they were defeated, and the Egyptian general Scopus was captured. Verse 16, But he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land, a reference to Israel, with destruction in his hand. By virtue of his victory, Antiochus the Great took lasting dominion of Palestine. And paying no attention to the mercenaries, it says he settled down for a while in the land of Israel with destruction in his hand. Verse 17, And he will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Having gained Palestine, he's not satisfied there. He wants to also take control of Egypt, but this time he doesn't want to fight for it. He tries a different tactic, and that is a peace settlement. And so it says here, he gave the daughter of women. That's a reference to his daughter by the name of Cleopatra. He gave her to be married to Ptolemy Epiphanes, the king of Egypt. Now that happened in 197 B.C., but since Ptolemy was only 10 years old, he had to wait four years to actually get married. Now, Antiochus' goal was that he wanted to plant a spy in the palace of Egypt. It didn't work out that way because when Cleopatra married him, she fell so madly in love with her husband that she disregarded her father and the plans fell through. Which brings us to verse 18. It says, Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many. Antiochus the Great moved to the coastal regions of the Aegean Sea in 197 B.C., he made inroads in Asia Minor. He eventually even mounted an attack against Greece. But then it says in the middle of verse 18, but a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. And that commander we know from history was Lucius Cornelius Scipio, a Roman general who routed the Syrian army in 190 B.C. Verse 19, so he will turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. He goes back to Syria, and he actually attempts to plunder the temple of Jupiter and steal all its treasures. And history tells us that his own people were so upset at him that they killed him on the spot. And that was the end of our Antiochus the Great. Which brings us to verse 20. It says, Then in his place one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. With Rome's defeat of Syria, they set up an annual tax of 100 talents on Syria. And to get that money, the Syrian king, who was now Seleucus IV Philopater, turned around and taxed, as it says here, the jewel of his kingdom, which is a reference to Israel. In fact, history tells us the name of that tax collector. He's a man by the name of Heliodorus. And verse 20 says at the end, Yet within a few days he will be shattered, though neither in anger nor in battle. And that's a reference to the king, Seleucus Philopater. He didn't die in battle. He didn't die in some kind of dispute. He died mysteriously by being poisoned in 176 B.C. And historians propose that it was probably Heliodorus who assassinated the king because immediately afterwards he sought to take the crown, but he didn't get it. 
Because verse 21 says, And in his place, a despicable person will arise. Now, this is a list of people who are probably less than creditable. And yet, here's a fellow who gets the distinguished honor of being called despicable. Now, who is this? Well, this is Antiochus IV. He was the small horn that we read about back in Daniel chapter 8. He referred to himself as Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means the glorious one, but God called him despicable. And verse 21 goes on to say, "...on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue." Antiochus was not in line for the throne. He was the brother of the king who just died. And so he was the uncle of the heir. The heir to the throne was a fellow by the name of Demetrius Soter, but he was being held as a captive in Rome. Uh, Seleucus the fourth Philopater also had a younger son who was also named Antiochus, but he was still a baby. And so Antiochus Epiphanes came into the scene acting as the guardian for little Antiochus. He didn't do a very good job because shortly thereafter, little Antiochus was murdered and Antiochus Epiphanes took the throne. Verse 22, And the overflowing forces will be flooded away before him. That's a description of his attack on Egypt that occurred in 170 B.C. And at the end of verse 22, it says, He will also flood over the prince of the covenant, which is a reference to the high priest of Israel, Onius III, who he had murdered in 171 B.C. And then it describes his strategy in the next couple verses. And after an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception, and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. His approach was to sit down with the king or talk to the king and say, let's make an alliance. And then when the king relaxed in a time of peace, he would attack. And that's what it says in verse 24. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm. He came in a time of peace and, and attacked, and then he figured out where the richest parts were of the realm, and he took those, and it says, he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them. Now, most of the kings before him took the goods, but they kept them for himself. He took the goods, and it says he distributed them among the people, which would make him very popular. He was a wily politician. He was like a Robin Hood. He would take the riches out of a nation and distribute it to the poor in his own nation to try to gain popularity for himself. And then it says at the end of verse 24 that he would devise... Or I'm sorry, he, and he will devise his schemes against strongholds. He would figure out where the strongholds are and then he would go there and defeat them before they rose up. And then it says, but only for a time. And I think that's added to remind Daniel that even though this guy is so careful, he's trying to build his political future, he's trying to establish himself so he'll be king for a long time, and the angel says to Daniel, it'll only be for a short time. And Antiochus Epiphanes only reigned for 12 years. Verse 25, And he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war, but he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. And again, this describes another attack on Egypt. This time it, it took place in Pelusium, just east of the Nile Delta. The Egyptian king was Ptolemy Philometer, who actually was Antiochus's nephew, the son of Cleopatra, who was Antiochus's sister. 
And if you understand that, you're ahead of me. This was kind of a family affair. And so he comes down to do battle against Egypt. And on paper, it looked like the Egyptian army was the greater army. And yet they lost because, as it says at the end of verse 25, he devised a scheme against them. What was the scheme? Verse 26. And those who eat his choice food will destroy him, and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. Antiochus Epiphanes worked with the counselors of Egypt, the very ones who sat at the king's table to betray him. And as a result, Ptolemy Philometer was taken captive back to Syria with Antiochus Epiphanes, and his brother became king of Egypt. Verse 27. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table, but it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. Back in Syria, Antiochus Epiphanes sits down with Ptolemy Philometer, and he says, you know, I'll get you back to the throne of Egypt if you do this, this, and this. And Ptolemy Philometer says, I'll do whatever you say. And this verse says they were both lying which is not uncommon, is it? I mean, heads of nations say, if we can just sit down at the table and talk, we'll resolve something. And what do they do? They sit down and tell the other whatever they want to hear to try to get a peace treaty. How long do peace treaties last? You know how many treaties have been broken in the history of the world? All of them. They sit down at the table. If we can just sit down, we'll work this out. They make a treaty, it's broken. And that's what happened here. Verse 28. Then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. He's coming back with his arms full of plunder that he got from Egypt, and Antiochus Epiphanes comes through Israel, and he spots the temple, and he's not satisfied with the plunder he got. he's got. He spots the temple, and it, we're told in 1 Maccabees chapter 1 that he went over and stripped all the gold and valuables out of the temple and took them with him as he went back to Syria. Verse 29. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south, but this last time it will not turn out the way it did before, for ships of Kittim will come against him. This is his third expedition into Egypt. It occurred in 168 B.C., but this time it was not as successful as the others because it says in verse 30, ships of Kittim will come. Now the word Kittim is a reference to Cyprus, an island in the Mediterranean. It later became associated with the whole Mediterranean area. And who is it that was gaining control of the Mediterranean area at this time? It was Rome. So this is a reference to ships of Rome. The Ptolemies of Egypt got so tired of Antiochus Epiphanes coming down and doing battle with them that they appealed to Rome for reinforcements. So this time when Antiochus Epiphanes starts to approach Egypt, the cavalry shows up. The Roman navy comes in and they met him about the city of Alexander and we're told in history that the Roman consul by the name of Gaius Populus Laenus demanded that he leave Egypt or face a battle with Rome. And Antiochus Epiphanes said he wanted time to think about the terms. So Populus drew a circle around him with his sword and told him to decide before he stepped out of that circle. He decided he would retreat to Syria. Verse 30 at the end says, Therefore he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action, so he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. 
he came down to Egypt all dressed up for a fight and didn't get to fight. So he comes back through Israel angry and frustrated. And what does he do? He takes it out on Israel. And the first thing he does, because he's a politician before a fighter, is he says, whoever wants to join me out of Israel, any of you apostate Jews that want to join me, you can join me. And it says, many did to save their skin. And then, verse 31, and forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. He stopped the daily sacrifices, erected a statue of Zeus in the holy place, and then he sacrificed a pig on the altar, took the blood and splattered it throughout the temple. And we're told here that this is the abomination of desolation, the most abominable activity imaginable. Verse 32, And by smooth words he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. Even these apostate Jews went along with him in this because it says he was such a smooth talker. End of verse 32, But the people who know their God will display the strength and take action. And that's a reference to the Maccabean revolt led by Judas Maccabees. The faithful Jews took action by standing up against Antiochus. Verse 33, And those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. And I wish I had time to give you some illustrations of that because First and Second Maccabees are full of illustrations of men, women, and children who were tortured, burned, and murdered by Antiochus and his troops. Verse 34, Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help, and many will join with them in hypocrisy. When they set up this revolt, it had two, two side effects. Number one, there were certain people who joined them when they saw their courage in standing up against Antiochus. Those were the faithful. But later, when it became evident that the Maccabees were actually going to be successful, many from Israel joined them. These were the ones who joined in hypocrisy. They didn't want to be there at the beginning, but when they realized it was going to be successful, they joined the bandwagon. Which brings us to verse 35. And some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. Why is God allowing this to happen? We're told in verse 35. To refine, purge, and purify His people. Nothing is as effective in driving people to God as suffering. And when the people of Israel went through this time of suffering, it had a purifying effect on them. And so the angel says to Daniel, who is weeping, there's a purpose in this suffering. And he says to Daniel, who is thinking that the seven years of captivity is the end of it all, he's saying, Daniel, you haven't seen anything yet. Because Persian kings like Ahasuerus will dominate your land. And then Alexander the Great will dominate your land. And then the king of the north and the king of the south will use your land as a battlefield for about 150 years. And then Antiochus Epiphanes is going to come along and he's going to do more abominable things to the people and to the temple than you can even imagine. And that's not even the end of it. Because he says at the end of verse 35, it will happen this way until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. This end time is still to come, and it's still future from today. 
And so he's describing to Daniel what's going to happen to the people of Israel, and he says it's going to be suffering, suffering, suffering. And he takes them down to about 163 B.C., and he just stops there. But their suffering has continued all through the years, and it's still, they still are in a position of suffering today because the Gentiles are still trampling underfoot the city of Jerusalem today. There's no temple there. They're still suffering. And they will suffer even more in that future day that he's going to talk to us about in the second half of this chapter, and that is the tribulation period. And that also is a time of testing and purifying for the people of God. And that's why it says in Romans chapter 11, verse 26, that in the tribulation period, all Israel will be saved. And that final chapter of Israel's history, we will look at next week in the last half of this passage.